0: My name is Michael Lintz. I'm a partner at Golden Gate Ventures in Singapore. My name is Justin Hall, partner of Golden Gate Ventures. I'm redefining venture capital by not only focusing on the outcome of our investments, but also focusing on mental health and social impact.
1: I am redefining venture capital by spotlighting founders and companies unique to Southeast Asia and proving that billion-dollar companies can scale from emerging markets.
2: Welcome to The First Close, Carta's podcast about the people who are building next-generation venture capital firms. We interview new voices in venture about their ambitions and challenges as they aim to redefine the industry. At Carta, we help VCs build enduring venture franchises, starting with Fund One. To learn more about how Carta expands access to equity and transforms capital markets, visit us at carta.com. That's C-A-R-T-A dot com. I'm Jessica Strauss, host of The First Close. Today, we interviewed Michael Lintz and Justin Hall, partners at Golden Gate Ventures, a venture capital firm based in Singapore. Founded in 2011, Golden Gate Ventures invests in seed stage and Series A companies across Southeast Asia, including in Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, the Philippines, Taiwan, Vietnam, Hong Kong, and South Korea. Justin joined Golden Gate Ventures as an intern in 2012 while he was working on his master's degree at the National University of Singapore. Within the firm, he worked his way up from intern to become an associate, then a principal, and finally became partner in 2018. Justin is also a member of the Kauffman Fellowship as part of Class 20. Michael joined the team at Golden Gate Ventures one year after Justin in 2013 as a venture partner and became partner in 2017. Michael has always been passionate about technology, and a Harvard Business School class on venture capital piqued his interest in investing, and one of his classmates introduced him to Golden Gate Ventures. Michael flew to Singapore to check it out, and he never left. Michael is also in the Kauffman Fellowship as part of class 23. As always, we'll start with our guest slash lines, the key stats that make up their unique track records. Michael and Justin have made 65 investments at Golden Gate Ventures. Justin has been in the investment world for nine years, all of which he has spent at Golden Gate Ventures. Justin has had 10 exits. Justin sits on 10 boards and one nonprofit board. Justin has over 2,000 followers on Twitter and has had over 50 press mentions. Michael has been a founder twice, first of a startup in the early 2000s focusing on data center services, and second, he founded an economic development board for the Netherlands. Michael has been in the investment world for 15 years, and he has spent eight of those years at Golden Gate Ventures. Michael has had eight exits. Michael sits on one board and two nonprofit boards. He has written 16 blog posts, has over 1,800 followers on Twitter, and has had over 100 press mentions. One of the reasons I'm excited to have you all on The First Close today is that you are our first guest from Singapore. So thank you for coming on the show. On The First Close, we focus on helping first-time emerging managers who are managing their first fund really get a sense of what it takes, what the challenges are. And since Golden Gate Ventures was founded in 2011, you all are bringing the perspective of a firm that has now a decade of experience. And so I'd like to just start with, how did you come to Golden Gate Ventures?
1: I started out as an intern. I had found myself in Singapore at the time because I was pursuing graduate studies at the National University of Singapore. I came here on scholarship. I really didn't know what to do. The only reason why I took a graduate degree is because I hated my previous job and I just wanted a two-year break. I didn't know what I was going to do. Undergraduate, I did history and political science. I realized I can't do anything with that. So I needed to get a technical degree that maybe... Touched on that, so I did public policy. And when I was pursuing that US, Mayor Bloomberg at the time, I'm originally from New York City, he was pursuing some pretty ambitious entrepreneurship policies back home. So I said, okay, I can learn this from Singapore. It's probably one of the few success cases in the entire world in deliberately fostering an entrepreneurial ecosystem. It was still very young at the time, but you saw that there was a concerted effort from policymakers to say, all right, we have very few levers that we can control, money is one, talent is another. Let's deliberately foster policies that foster both. And so I wanted to understand that. I wanted to see how that worked out. So I focused on entrepreneurship policy in Singapore. I obviously needed to do research and true to form, this is true to Golden Gate today. It was obviously true of Golden Gate when it was just two people. I emailed four or five funds at the time. Some of them still exist today, but I won't name names. And Vinny was the only one that responded to my email. Vinny, my partner at Golden Gate Ventures. I said, oh, I'd love to pick your brain. Like what makes an entrepreneurial ecosystem successful? What was Silicon Valley like? Can it happen here? We met up for coffee. He said, why don't you just work for us for the summer? He made very explicitly clear it's unpaid. I was like, okay, that's fine. Didn't have any money at the time, but I joined as the first intern, the only intern at the time. And I guess the rest is history, to use a cliche. I've been with the fund since May of 2012. So it'll be... 10 years next year, and 10 years in Singapore this month, actually. So it's been a long, long time.
2: And Michael, how about you?
1: So I was still back in Europe
0: when Golden Gate Ventures was founded. I was between, I call it a bunch of stuff. So I had exited my own company, which was a data center back in the Netherlands. I felt that after spending almost a decade in technology, I wanted to do something different. So I started to do a bit more advisory stuff. Ended up being picked up by the Dutch government as they were launching their economic development board, funny enough, equal to the model that they saw in Singapore. So they had a trade mission to Singapore. They saw the economic development board and said, we want something similar for the Netherlands. I became a vice chairman for that board for about four years, but I felt that politics was not my life. So after two terms, I said, this is okay and good for me. And I wanted to go back into investing. Funny enough, my wife said, you are not an investor. Maybe you should learn how to invest. So I picked up a ticket to Boston, two Harvard executive courses, and one was private equity and venture capital. And I still remember to this day that one of my classmates, he actually just moved to Singapore and said, I met this young fund. They just started off, they have some cool deals. You should have a look at the team. So I literally just bought a plane ticket to Singapore to meet Vinny Lauria and Jeffrey Payne, two co-founders. We had a fun dinner at a friend's place, and I was asking what they were doing. And they said, yeah, we're raising a Series A for one of our portfolio companies. Why don't you guys have a look? So I said, okay. So I took a look and helped raise a little bit of money for that company. And funny enough, I ended up going back to Singapore, I think about 12 times a year, and making investor introductions, looking at some of the portfolio companies. And at some point, Vinny and Jeff said, yeah, why don't you just stay and help out with the fund? So I called my wife and said, yeah, we're moving to Singapore, (laughs) where she was furious, but we're still here. So (laughs) that's how I eventually moved the family and joined the team and helped raise our second fund in 2014.
2: You know, we usually focus on the emerging manager, but you all have such interesting career paths into Golden Gate. I'm wondering what kind of advice would you give to someone who wants to get into venture? Both of you basically found direct connections into Golden Gate. And had it sounds like a really good connection with the team, and that led to you joining the fund. I think that there's a lot of ways to approach getting a role in VC. Do you think that the tried and true reach out and build a relationship still stands?
0: We get this question a lot. A lot of folks that are leaving university or are doing a job switch. I can honestly say this is more my personal opinion, but I don't feel that VC is a typical career. It's not as you might go work for a bank or maybe a large private equity fund where things are a little bit more structured. Yeah, still VC is very much driven by networks and warm introductions. But the funny thing is, I feel that it also comes with a lot of operational experience and a career path within a VC firm is usually not linear. I've seen people go from VC to becoming an operator and vice versa. So I feel that for anyone that is looking to build a career in VC, I'd say, just don't see it as a career, (laughs) almost kind of see it as a life experience, because you're going to learn a lot about yourself if you join a firm. And then I guess the second part is, do your work. So talk to as many people as you can. So ask for as many introductions. I always tell folks that are approaching us for, hey, I'm looking at a career in this industry. I say, before you apply, talk to as many people as you can. You want to understand different DNAs of different firms, how they approach investing, how they approach portfolio management, how do they approach working with founders. It is so important to understand the DNA before jumping into this career. So yeah, you're right. It's a lot about building up a network, have as much conversations as you can.
1: I would completely agree with that. In a place as mature as the United States, when you have thousands of different funds, I feel that... Maybe the differences between funds, it's going to be a little bit finer because you have so many. I think that there's much larger cohorts and you'd find out a huge cohort that's super pro entrepreneur, huge cohorts that are really good in MA, very transactional, huge cohorts that are quote unquote founder friendly. In Southeast Asia, which is much younger, it's a much smaller ecosystem, relatively speaking. It's a lot easier to identify the distinct differences between funds. There's going to be like, one or two funds that are known for being very aggressive, like the negotiation and terms each stage. There are a very few number of funds that are considered, I think, classically pro-founder or founder friendly. So to echo Mike's point, if you're in Southeast Asia, if you're really trying to explore this industry, it's not difficult to understand what the DNA of those respective funds are, what the respective GPs are and how they operate and how they manage their portfolio and founders. So 100%, you need to put in the work to really understand the funds that will resonate with you. Because if you don't like these funds, you're getting into bed with these funds for like eight to 10 years. It can be a very, very, very long time. Which leads to my point in that before you even get into VC... The feedback loops in VC are outrageously long. They are so long. And by a feedback loop, I mean, in like a normal job, if you do something well, you'll see the results of that next week, right? Maybe next month. In VC, if you do something well, you're not going to see the result for 10 years. If you're doing an investment in fund one, most early stage funds, they're 10 years plus one plus one. And you could invest in a great deal in January 2011 and you're not going to see the results of that often until January 2021, 2011 to 2021. And that can be eye-opening and it can be really frustrating. Frustrating isn't even the right word. It can be earth-shattering if you find great companies and then eight years down their journey, they actually implode. And then you look back at all this work that you've done. And so that can be really tough to manage. Most people, before they go into VC, have zero idea how long the feedback loop is, what the successes will be, what the failures will be. And oftentimes, it's hard to even predict that. We've looked at companies that said, oh, this company is going to be a winner. Fast forward five years, that company's not around anymore. And it can be a shock. And by the same token, we look at a company and say, wow, this company is going to have a tough time. And they end up absolutely killing it. But again, it takes four, five, six years to get to that point, And that fog of war, so to speak, it can make the job quite tricky. So be aware that if you need constant feedback, constant validation of your decisions, this is not the industry for you.
2: So what I'm hearing from both of you is patience and curiosity. Really be curious about the firms, the companies they support. Be curious about the experience itself, Michael. As you said, it could be something that is one experience of many in your career. In fact, it most likely will be. Very few have a straightforward start and venture as an analyst and then go all the way through their career. So that's really helpful. I want to dive into this concept of DNA and what comprises a firm and understand what Golden Gate's DNA is. And you're in Southeast Asia. You invest across a huge region So I'd like to start with, what is your investment thesis today? And then since it's your 10-year anniversary, go back to the beginning and think a little bit about the evolution.
0: We define ourselves by finding exceptional deals that are extremely regional or local. And the reason why that's important is we've had this since day one. And this is the funny thing. The one thing that hasn't changed in our thesis or strategy is... If a company doesn't make sense from a local or regional perspective, we will hardly or not at all invest. We can find an amazing company or an amazing founder that is attacking a global problem or is looking to build a global product from day one, but they are based in Singapore, they're based in Vietnam. It is very unlikely that they will invest. We are looking for the right companies, the right founders that understand the dynamics of the region, that are able to really attack a problem that can be hyper-local. It could be very specific to Indonesia or very specific to Vietnam. But that's their background and that's how they view the world and that's how they are trying to solve this problem. So that's one of the most important ones. The second one, is, it's I'm not sure if I can say this word, but just don't be an asshole. And it's a very important part of the DNA, how we approach our investments. I've had a number of our investment committee meetings where we go through all the check boxes. And then we say, but do we like this team? And do we see ourselves working with this team over the next 10 years, kind of going through the hardships and the good times? And it's a very important part of checking off our investment. We call it entrepreneur first, but the underlying tone is we want to make sure that this entrepreneur is able to work with us and our team over a longer period of time and vice versa. I'm sure that. Just a approach from a different angle, but that's how I also tend to explain it to our limited partners how we kind of view the world.
1: I would agree completely. I think the only addendum is we're in such a unique market that is so different from what we see not only in the United States and Europe, but even China, even India. And not only is it different, but the potential is enormous. I think the Goldman Sachs recently launched a report saying that some of the world's largest economies, like the top ten. Are going to be based in Southeast Asia. Indonesia, Philippines and Vietnam would be some of the largest economies in the world and they're still classified as emerging economies today. And yet we're starting to see now, despite this emerging markets moniker, billion-dollar companies. I mean, one of the largest SPACs in the entire world, I think if not the largest SPAC in the entire world, came from Southeast Asia with Grab. And so we are in a very unique, fast-growing market and Yet there are so many things that have yet to be done in terms of B2B and B2C digitization or companies that I think people take for granted in the States or in Europe or even in China. That still hasn't happened in Southeast Asia yet. But that gives us clarity. That gives us additional foresight that we've seen these companies grow and scale elsewhere. It hasn't happened now. Let's find those companies. And so, like Mike was saying, we want to find These fast growing companies that are really sort of unique to Southeast Asia, unique to Indo, unique to Vietnam. But because we've been here for so long, we know that not only are these unique that you won't typically find them elsewhere, but they have the capacity to grow extremely, extremely large. And those are the ones that get us really excited. Those are the ones that kind of make us sit up and say, Oh, I'm so happy that we're here. We wouldn't be able to find these deals anywhere else. And just as a tiny caveat to that, some of the largest companies that you see coming out of Southeast Asia, they were clones of models overseas. But at the very, very start, they hyper localized to agree that they were extremely different from what we would see in like Uber or Stripe. And you're seeing the emergence of these homegrown, not copycats, not clones, but like almost mutants at this point where they take a validated business model and then they innovate and change so much that they're a totally different creature. That's what we're investing in. That's what gets us excited. That's in our DNA of what we like and what we want to invest in. And then going to your previous question, has that changed today? To be honest, it has not. I think part of the reason why we all came out here and why we all met and started working together is because we all saw something similar in the region, which is what I said, that the potential for growth, the potential for opportunity here is so significant. And there's nobody else touching it. There's nobody else here, relatively speaking. Like the number of funds here is much less than mature markets or even markets like China and India. It's changing now. But at the time, there was very little venture capital here. So I think we were all excited by that. And today, we're still excited by this. That part hasn't changed. Maybe the individual trends, the individual thesis within B2C, within B2B, that has changed. And I would actually say that's changed on a more frequent basis than I think funds would see in more mature markets. In a mature market, you'd see a fund invest in fintech straight through and not deviate from that. In Southeast Asia, I think it's still young enough where it goes through cyclical trends. And some years or some quarters, it might be more focused on fintech. Other quarters might be more focused on social commerce. Other quarters might be focused on health. But that's fine and that's good because, again, it's such a fast-growing dynamic region. Everything is changing rapidly, and you need to be able to move and navigate multiple verticals and DCs pretty quickly. I think
0: that we always say, because we're still building infrastructure, you don't have the luxury to say, you know what? I'm just going to do healthcare.
2: What do you mean by building infrastructure as a startup ecosystem, as a region?
0: Literally everything. One example is if you try to do cross border shipping across Southeast Asia, Getting through customs in all those countries is one heck of a job. Still, 90% of all transactions in Indonesia have some shape or form of literal physical cash payments. So we're still kind of putting the fundamentals in in terms of a holistic tech platform. You never know when you have proper 4G if it's raining in Indonesia. So these things make it interesting because, again, you don't have the luxury to say, you know what, internet is given... Cross-border logistics is a given. There's a certain level of healthcare or education, which is a given. You're kind of all developing it as you go. So yeah, to Justin's point, it also means for us is that we have to be extremely flexible to new trends that are coming up just because you are building this infrastructure as you go along.
2: And so one of the things that I think is really interesting is that you want hyperlocal characteristics of the company, but they also need to be able to scale across the region. What kind of founders are building these companies? Are these people that worked in tech companies and have a really strong sense of how to build product? Are these people who have lived outside of the region and come back? Who are the founders that are really able to kind of nail this hyperlocal scalable approach?
1: This one has sort of changed because the archetype of companies that are capable of doing this, I think in the beginning was very methodical, strong operational experience, like they've done this before. That archetype still exists today. And I think there's a premium placed on those founders when being invested in. That has expanded now to include founders that are phenomenal fundraisers, of which we didn't see that before. You are now seeing founders that are either local or have come into Southeast Asia that raise Extraordinarily well. Similar to what you might expect in the United States or China, where they deliberately foster the sense of FOMO. They know how to push investors' buttons. They know how to construct around in a very precise way to generate more and more interest long term. Five years ago it didn't exist. Now you're seeing founders that raise 10 million, six months they raise 50, 18 months they raise hundred. That's happening now. Those founders, they have the war chest to expand across the region. And then you pointed out there's another archetype that was really well-recognized to the point where open secret, there were some funds that said, we have a much higher propensity to invest in these types of founders, which is locals that were educated overseas and then came back. A statistically significant number of the unicorns and very well-financed successful companies in Southeast Asia, they were founded by entrepreneurs that were born locally, educated overseas and came back. And there are a few reasons for that. One is that they typically come from some kind of wealth. It is not cheap to be born in an emerging economy, which is a little bit poorer than Western nations, and to go to a six-digit annual tuition school overseas. And so they're usually coming from a pretty substantive safety net back home. That safety net is not only financial, but it's also personal. The personal connections, they're usually being very well-educated overseas. And when they come back they are equipped with so many advantages that lends itself very well to starting a company. Like similar to what you would see with Evan's of Snapchat, right? Like he actually had a pretty decent personal wealth. And I think that there was this safety net and this perspective that I think lends itself pretty well to entrepreneurship. If you look at Southeast Asia, there is, again, a statistically significant number of companies that were started from people that were educated overseas, good network, financial wealth, and they applied that. So archetypes for who can expand across the region that has expanded Originally, it was operational. Now it's aggressive fundraisers, educated overseas that came back. But at the end of the day, actually, it's the ones with operational experience expanding across the region who are sensitive to the nuances and cultural differences between the countries and know how to navigate that. That's still the best.
2: Something I think is really interesting about what you all have said is there's relatively few VCs in the region, even still compared to other parts of the world, Europe and the U.S., but we've seen, despite that, a huge rise in venture capital investment in the region. There are more VCs forming. There's certainly more company formation occurring. How do you stay top of mind for those founders? Do you find that it's much more competitive for you? How do you make sure that when a phenomenal fundraiser is out there, they're thinking of Golden Gate? What's important for them to know about you?
0: I'd almost say that the first thing is we are taking care of the founders in our portfolio. It goes an extremely long way if a founder in your portfolio says, "I love working with the Golden Gate Ventures guys and the team, and you should be talking to them." That goes an extreme long way. So it goes back to my point of you know being sort of an entrepreneur first fund. The second thing is when it comes to providing value for the companies, I think that there's a few ways of going about it. I think when a founder asks for an intro, you can send the email and sort of leave it at that. But I noted that people across our entire team have had conversations, not only with founders, but even with their senior management or with their HR or with that talent team or with their CMO about what is next for you guys and how can we be of best help. I've noticed that providing that value and really being someone that sort of sits next to the entrepreneur and say, okay, let's kind of talk through this and what is the outcome? Good or bad, right? That has really helped us position ourselves as a fund And it has helped us still get into good deals and still that even if it's an amazing founder that's amazing at fundraising, who gives us a phone call. We emphasize across the team that not only, you know, whether it's me or Justin or Vinny or Jeff, that not only the partners are talking to the team, we want to make sure that the entire team is talking to the portfolio team. That just helps create a bigger network. And funny enough, what you'll notice is that even when people leave a startup and do something else, they would still remember talking to one of our team members. I kind of pride ourselves that we don't act as a fund that is top-down, but we spread it across the entire team. In fairness, we do quite a bit of outbound marketing as well. So we want to make sure that we remain visible as a fund. So whether it's publishing reports that we have certain data on, whether it's co-hosting events, we do a lot of founder roundtables virtually nowadays, but we still do them pretty often. We bring in experts. So one example, we did a session on SPACs in Southeast Asia, and I've noticed there's like, a million sessions about specs, but we had four bankers really sit down we said, this is only for our portfolio and some of our limited partners. And we said to our founders, just ask away any question that you might have. And those sessions are extremely valuable. And we do notice that those things go a
1: long way in terms of branding ourselves for up and coming founders. And just to add to this, one thing that has been extremely valuable for us and it has made our job a lot easier is just really nailing down a differentiated strategy to other funds. Again, that's easier to do in Southeast Asia, where, as we pointed out, relatively speaking, there's lesser funds here than in a mature market like the United States. And so differentiation is likely harder to come by there. But in a nascent market like Southeast Asia, a relatively nascent market like Southeast Asia, having a solid differentiated strategy really makes a difference. And I don't just mean differentiated strategy when it comes to investment thesis. I mean differentiated strategy when it comes to portfolio construction in terms of founders that you like, founders that you resonate with. These are all things that encompass what a GP likes to invest in and what an IC will approve. To Mike's point, not only is this a good team, is this a good founder? Is this somebody that we want to back? Do we support their vision? Do we support that mission? Not just, oh, is this fintech? Sure, we can look at it. And this is not something that we just did at the start. I mean, at the start, we were still learning, but now we're taking a very, tailored approach, not only to the markets that we invest in, not only the stage, not only the thesis, but everything else that comes after that. And so when you take all these different things into account from portfolio, construction, from founder archetype, et cetera, you create a very strict focus. And that means ultimately that you can move very, very fast on the deals that fit, which is ultimately the most important thing. Because that means that you're getting front of line with the founders that work, front in line with the startups that fit mandate, and you can operate at a much faster speed. And true to form in Southeast Asia, true to form in the United States, and China, etc., speed is still ultimately the biggest deciding factor. If you can get front of line with a competitive deal and be the first to write that check or give a commitment... That will really move the needle the most, right? Because the first investor that gives a commitment there at such an advantage when it comes to securing allocation, that if you can get there first, great, you're doing your job well. And I think something that we have done well is figure out what that mandate is, figure out what our differentiated strategy is across all these different factors, and then built up processes that allow us to move fast off that. If it hits certain checklists, if it hits all these different things, boom, done. Let's do it.
2: What I appreciate about what you both said is, Justin, you talked about focus equals speed. And that's how you win the investment. And Michael, you talked about that enduring relationship through really providing deep value add is a term to stick on all of the various relationships that you create for your portfolio company. So it's this combination of having the focus to act And having the commitment to support the portfolio company, which I think makes me wonder, how do you go about sourcing companies across Southeast Asia? We talked about the external. This is how you actually win the deal and support the deals. But what are your internal processes for finding companies and getting them through investment committee?
1: I think in terms of deal sourcing, it comes through a variety of different ways. I think these ways would be pretty common or pretty normal to your audience, which is proprietary networks, whether that's through co-investors or other companies, especially companies that we previously invested in or founders that we worked before and like us and they refer us deals, cold emails. Something that I would say is a little bit unique to us or any fund here is that we would travel a lot. So pre-pandemic, we all remember what travel was like. I think one of the partners would be in another country every week or every other week. So we were going to Vietnam, we were going to Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, Thailand anywhere to source deals. And it sounds exhausting. It was, but not as exhausting as you would think because, you know, it only takes two hours to go to Jakarta, three hours to go to, I think, Thailand or Vietnam. Like, it's not that bad. And then when you're there, it's almost as if you're sort of on vacation because one of the beautiful things about Southeast Asia is that it's so variated. There's so many different countries and so many different cultures, languages, etc., that When you get off a plane from Singapore to Vietnam, it's like you're entering another world and there's an excitement there that I think kind of bleeds into the job. So I would say that's probably a little bit more unique to Southeast Asian funds. If you are a regional fund, you need to travel. And if you want to have a laugh, you would look at a GP at a regional fund's passport. They go through those within months. They travel so much. I remember we were all disappointed internally. I think the U.S. Embassy, Vinny and myself are Americans. The U.S. Embassy recently removed the option to add an additional book for your passport. Now you just have to get a new book. Vinny's passport, I think, at some point looked like a phone book. It was so thick with so many different stamps. So we would travel quite extensively. And that's really the main unique thing to this region. The one last point here is that when you are a fund that's been in operation for as long as us, And it's been as consistent as us in terms of the GPs, in terms of the partners, in terms of the thesis and how we behave, etc. That consistency gives us a brand that I think is just naturally top of mind for a lot of founders. Where when they go out to raise, at this stage, I think we're very blessed to say that when they go out, Golden Gate will just naturally be part of that internal dialogue. Like, who can I speak to? What's my hit list? GGV is generally going to be up there. So just have to... Disagree with Justin on two points. One is the travel is exhausting.
0: <laughs> the number of red-eye flights that we take between partners is not not healthy. And it's definitely not like vacation. <laughs> <laughs> you rush yourself through the airports. I've seen myself, Justin... Vinny and Jeff run through airports like idiots. That's and- true.
1: <laughs> this is very much rose-tinted glasses, actually, now that you mention this. I remember Vinny did something insane, which she asked me if I wanted to do. I think he asked Mike if he wanted to do it as well. He ended up bringing our associate, now principal. He wanted to do a day trip to Japan. Who does a day trip to Japan? Like, that's insane. That was a fundraising trip. So fundraising trips are terrible. That sucks it out of you. Deal sourcing... Exhausting, not as bad, but fundraising trips, those are bad. Sorry, Mike, that's true.
2: So thank you, Michael, for reminding us all that travel actually is very wearing, and we're all soon to return to that, I'm sure. Speaking of fundraising, something I'm curious about is, how have you seen LP attitudes, just in general, over the last decade, change around Southeast Asia, if they have changed? Just looking at capital-raised there is more appetite for exposure to the region. But what are you finding on the ground?
0: It's almost day and night, I would say, if I look through the last decade. I think in the first few years, we didn't even have the luxury to really market our fund because you were only trying to explain why you have a fund in Singapore. And some LP said, Yeah, I think I get it, but the timing doesn't make any sense. The ecosystem is not big enough, there is hardly any exits. All the deals look the same. It's all e-commerce or marketplaces. Like, what are you guys doing? So you feel that you're in a Ferrari. And then all the limited partners look at, nah, that's like an old Ford. And you're trying to convince everyone, no, no, it's a Ferrari. Look, it's going really fast. And you have to disconnect what LPC and what you experience on the ground. So you're sort of selling, okay, it might be a Ford, but I swear it's going to be Ferrari in five years' time. So that was kind of our initial pitch. And you will need some early believers in the ecosystem. And I'd say the first cohort of LPs were ones that actually spent time in the region. So they were either extremely adventurous and said, okay, I've done emerging markets before. I see the same patterns. Or they were early in China and said, yeah, there's some resemblance here. So I can recognize those patterns. And if you guys are half right, at least I won't lose any money. Or they were actually on the ground. They spent time in Indonesia or they spent time in Singapore or They might have invested in real estate in Vietnam, so at least they have an understanding of what is happening in the region. So those were typically the first cohort of LPs. None of them would go really big. They tended to be, okay, we're just going to dip our toes in the water and feel the temperature. And then once you kind of have them over the line, it takes a lot of communicating. So once an LP invests in your fund, especially if it's the first investment, talk to them as much as you can in terms of giving them updates on deals, giving them updates on why you are doing a specific deal, giving them bad news early instead of late. And the reason why this is important is those first limited partners are going to be an extreme important support for your second fund. Because the biggest question always then becomes, okay, you're an emerging manager. You've had all these first LPs that were kind of more adventurous Now in your second fund, how many of those adventurous people now believe in what you're doing and are going to re-up in your second fund? So it's very important to be almost over communicating and reporting and sharing. If I look at the ecosystem now, it's more that I literally hear LPs say, yeah, it's part of our asset class. So we literally have a percentage that we want to allocate to Southeast Asia. What is interesting though, is that I do see the large institutions still located from, okay, if I compare China to Southeast Asia, I do still see China as a tremendously large market. It's very matured, extremely deep ecosystem. If they then make the comparison, they still feel like, okay, Southeast Asia is going fast and there's a lot happening, but they would try to compare apples to apples. And they would say, for instance, a number of exits in China, there's local IPOs. We don't see as much in Southeast Asia yet. But they do now see that the number of companies that have been raising a Series B round or a number of companies that have been raising a Series C round, those investors in those rounds are not just local families or are not just local conglomerates. Those are international renowned fund names or PE funds that are actually investing in those deals. I think that has been the biggest difference. So whenever I talk to an LP now, I don't have to explain about Saudi Asia at all. They know. They understand They know who the unicorns are. They know the big names. They know who the funds are on the ground. And now you can finally talk about what makes us different. You know, what is our investment thesis? Why do we make these investments?
1: I think that that has been the biggest difference.
2: Anything to add, Justin?
1: I think one thing that I am seeing much, much more now is, to Mike's point, Southeast Asia as a market is becoming more attractive. And that has influenced not only The perception of the opportunity here, but it's actually making some funds, whether they're LPs or direct investors sit up and start committing capital here. And we're not talking about experimental bets at this point. It's very much Southeast Asia is a market for us. It's here to stay. Let's start putting money to work. And this is significant amounts of capital. I mean, like hundreds of millions of dollars that they're putting to work here. And it goes to show that It took a while for us to get here, but it does feel, especially with the emergence of a lot of these SPACs, I think we had a very large merger in Indonesia with Gojek and Tokopedia. They merged. We had a huge SPAC that just emerged with Grab. I think a few other very, very big names are starting to come out. I mean, Southeast Asia is seeing really big changes happening now, and we're all witnessing this pretty significant paradigm shift in how these global investors are perceiving the region and I think we're all gonna ultimately benefit from that.
2: I think it's interesting because I'm seeing more venture fund strategies around overlooked markets and it takes a long time for all of the factors that create the step change that you're now seeing in Southeast Asia to come together. Hmm. As you look back on your time so far investing in the region, What would you say the most significant lever has been for change? Of course, there's a million things that had to occur to get to where we are now in the venture ecosystem. But if you could pick just one thing, what would it be?
0: I think a handful of exceptional founders do determine the direction of an ecosystem. And I think we've been fortunate to have a cohort of founders that kind of stuck through not easy fundraising times over the past seven, eight, nine years while building their company. I think they determine where the ecosystem is right now because the money is following them. So the fact that there's more money flowing into the region is a fact that there's amazing founders that are able to take on this funding. So yeah, for me, it would be that cohort of founders that have brought the
1: ecosystem to where it is now. Mine would be a core layer to that. If I had to choose one just clear fundamental factor. I would just say these natural demographic and economic shifts in the region. Take a step back, and this is a massive market that is underserved. And it's the reason why all this venture started pouring into India, all this venture started pouring into China. When you look at some of the countries individually in Southeast Asia, it's a very small market. But if you look at Southeast Asia collectively as one market, and you could have arguments saying that, oh no, you should not look at it as collectively as one market. It's all very different. And to many extents, that's true. And I've often said that Southeast Asia is a bit of a misnomer because it implies that this place is homogenous when it's extraordinarily heterogeneous. But if you look at the most successful companies here, those companies are regional. Those companies became where they are today because they learned to navigate multiple markets and expand into multiple markets. So if you look at it from that lens, this is one market. And if you're looking at it as one market, it is huge not only in terms of population, but in terms of economic shifts, in terms of growing penetration of mobile phone and internet usage. If you look at every single key metric defining the emergence of a vibrant internet economy, Southeast Asia has that in almost every single category. And again, when you look at that and you look at how underserved it is, that's when you start seeing good founders say, hey, I could do this here and become a unicorn. VCs will look at this place and say, there's no VC here. We can come in, we can start investing in these companies. You have governments that say, we want to have our own Silicon Valley. We have all this potential. We have all these pieces. Let's start passing policy that is conducive to startup formation and venture capital formation. And so we see that in Vietnam and Singapore, especially in, in Indonesia. So all of this, I think, was propelled forward by these very clear, fundamental demographic shifts happening on the ground that made people across the industry, from startups to VCs, et cetera, to just sit up and say, oh, wow, this place has been right in our faces and we've been sleeping on it, but there's so much stuff here. Let's get to work.
2: Exceptional founders and macroeconomic shifts combined. And I think there's a lot of lessons that can be applied to different regions, Latin America, the middle of the U.S., Lots of differences as well, but I think it's interesting to compare what's similar and to watch the trend lines. One last question, going back to the beginning where you all talked about your ambitions for redefining venture. Michael, you talked about mental health and having an impact. And Justin, you talked about scaling the next billion-dollar companies. I'd love to hear one success you've had in achieving this already.
0: I think raising our third fund was both fun and it showed the potential success of the ecosystem. So it was one of the fastest fundraisers we've ever done, concluded it within one year. And I think the level of interest, the way we were able to position where Southeast Asia was, I think had impact on how LPs viewed the region from that point on. So I think that was a key success where I'm actually very, very proud of.
1: And for mine, something that is very close to the heart is finding and scaling billion dollar opportunities that are unique to this region that you won't see anywhere else. And I think one success is finding with actually the help of Mike an Islamic fintech company in Indonesia called Alami. And they're tackling the Islamic banking industry, which is extremely old school, very conservative and kind of digitizing that. And this is something that is super unique The world's leading Islamic fintech companies will be coming out of Indonesia, just given the Muslim population. They won't come from North Africa. They won't come from MENA. They won't come from Europe or the United States. They will come from specifically Indonesia. I love that. And I would love to invest in more companies like that, that are business models, innovations, founders that will only have gotten their start here in Southeast Asia and will become global behemoths as a result.
2: Justin and Michael have been investing in Southeast Asia for nearly a decade. A decade that has seen the region take off with the emergence of unicorns, including super apps Gojek and Grab, tracks, Computer Vision for Retail, and travel platform Traveloka, to name a few. The rise of unicorns in Southeast Asia has driven the growth of the entire startup ecosystem. In June of 2021, the Golden Gate Ventures team published their Southeast Asia Exit Landscape Report in partnership with INSEAD, where they looked at the venture landscape since 2015 and forecast exits for the region. Looking ahead, the Golden Gate Ventures team predicts that there will be 700 startup exits occurring between 2023 and 2025, a finding grounded in regional unicorns becoming key strategic acquirers, increased participation from global investors and corporate VCs, and support from regional and international stock exchanges. Amid the dynamic growth in Southeast Asia, Justin and Michael emphasize that one of the keys to Golden Gate Venture's success is their consistency and focus. Their approach is to have a consistent team, strategy, and execution, and they believe consistency can make or break how successful you are. With Southeast Asia's broad range of cultures and languages and huge demographic shifts, Golden Gate Ventures focuses on founders that are able to be hyper-local problem solvers who can expertly and efficiently address specific regional needs. Golden Gate Ventures recognizes that intense focus on particular regions leads to speed, And one of their strengths is their ability to streamline everything they do into a tight and consistent process. Their strategy of consistency and focus has helped keep Golden Gate Ventures at the top of founders' minds when they're looking for investors. This podcast is presented by eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta and Carta Ventures. The opinions of the guests and host are their own and do not reflect the view of eShares Incorporated doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. Listeners should not treat any opinion or comments as investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The content of the podcast is not legal, financial, or tax advice and is not meant to recommend or offer the purchase or sale of a security. This podcast is informational only. The first close is a Hit Start Media production. The show is written and co-produced by me, Jessica Strauss. Hit Start Media founder Theo Miller is creative director, with sound production by Nick Canapa and script production by Mary Kelleher. This podcast is presented by eShares, Inc., doing business as Carta, Inc., Carta, and Carta Carta Ventures.